BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. By Trump making a strategic decision, thinking that it was a tactical decision, he handed to Iran essentially the right to decide what happens next. So Trump is back in Washington, D.C., probably not spending a whole lot of time in the upper floors of the White House, uh, rather nervous about what Iran might do. We've got military bases around the world that are quite nervous about what might happen. The threat level, the alert level, has been raised all over the world. You know, Mike Pompeo is trying to tell us that the world is safer now. The world is not safer now. America is not safer now. That's just crazy. And something is going to happen. The Iranians are going to respond. They've made it clear. We've made it clear. It is self-evident, I suppose. But what most people are not thinking about right now, and I think we need to really be thinking about it, and perhaps, and not even perhaps, we need to have a discussion about it, is the fact that when the Iranians respond, there will be an element of American society, also known as the Republican Party and the Trumpistas, or the Trumpettes, or the maggots, or whatever you want to call them, who will immediately use that response as an excuse to beat the drums of war. So whether the Iranians respond by you know, throwing missiles into a U.S. military base in Iraq and killing some of our soldiers, or whether they blow up an embassy someplace and kill one of our diplomats, or whether they take down the power grid for some major U.S. city and people die in hospitals because the respirators get shut off, whatever it may be. I mean, there's a thousand things that could happen, but it's virtually certain people are going to die because of this decision that Donald Trump made. And when they die, Fox News and Donald Trump and the syncopant Republicans, the the Lindsey Graham Republicans, are going to say, oh, look at what just happened. That justifies our striking Iran even harder. They're going to want to escalate. Trump has already threatened this. We've targeted 52 of your sites, including cultural sites. And in my opinion, We need to be ready for this. We need to be putting out the message right now that it was Trump's incompetence in making a move that was so large that it was a strategic move without any strategy, without any long-term plans, completely handing the momentum over to the Iranians and saying, okay, you guys, you're in charge now. You decide how this is going to play out. Trump made a strategic move without strategy. That's as bad and as stupid as it can get. 
And we need to be pointing that out over and over and over again. The only person I have I have seen or heard talk about this was Lawrence Wilkerson last night on MSNBC. I believe it was on Chris Hayes' show. And he was like, this was a strategic move that Trump thought was a tactical move. And I don't think most people who were listening even understood what he was saying. But we need to make it really, really clear, whatever Iran's response is, our response to that response, to American soldiers dying overseas, to American diplomats dying, to American civilians dying, to whoever dies as a result of Iran's response, our response has to be, and that was the result of Trump's stupidity. That was the result of Trump trying to change the subject away from his being impeached. That was the result of Trump trying to move the news cycle away from the report that had come out that a Russian bank had backstopped all his loans through Deutsche Bank. That was the result of Trump trying to change the news cycle. The responsibility for this is Trump's. And the blame should be Trump's. And if we can't cede the ground quickly, particularly in the media, with that message, then when that happens, we're going to get blindsided. Because there's going to be a firestorm, just like there was after 9-11, of rush to war stuff. And you know, the Project for New American Century, they came out in 1998 and said, we need to bomb Iraq and take out Saddam Hussein. They had been planning for three years. They were ready when 9-11 happened. And I guarantee you that the Fox News crazies and Trump, and th these guys are ready. They don't know what Iran's going to do, but they know Iran's going to do something, and they have their response prepared. Their talking points are ready to go. Their military escalation is in the can. And the only way, in my opinion, to disrupt it is to make it so obvious that this was a huge blunder on Trump's part. A strategic move without strategy that when it happens, instead of people saying, how dare Iran kill Ambassador so-and-so, people are saying, how dare Trump provoke a progressive escalation that could very easily lead to World War III. Because if we don't stop it, if we don't effectively shut down the call for war that's going to come out of Fox News and it's going to come out of the Trump administration, then it may well lead to World War III. They strike us proportionally. We strike back disproportionately. This is what Trump has promised. Then they strike back proportionate to that. And pretty soon you've got a full-blown war going on between the United States and Iran. And don't think that Iran is, not, uh, is afraid to fight a war. They lost a million people fighting a war with Iraq. It lasted eight long years. And it strengthened the regime in Tehran. Because war tends to bring people together. It's what Trump is betting on. What do you think will happen? Back in 1989, my best friend Jerry Schneiderman and I spent a good chunk of the month of August, at least a week, hanging out in Budapest, in Hungary. Now, Hungary was still part of the Soviet Union at that point in time. But Budapest was kind of quasi-liberated, as it were. That month, when Jerry and I were there, there was this huge rally in, uh, I think it was called Patriot Square. And over a quarter million people showed up. And this young politician who would become elected to parliament two years later, a 29-year-old guy named Viktor Orban, got up and gave a speech to a quarter million, maybe a third of a million people, basically calling on the Soviet Union to let his country go. And sure enough, nine months later, in May of 1990, the Soviet Union let go of Hungary. And while Jerry and I were there, we watched 
there was fireworks and stuff after this whole big rally. In fact, they caught part of the pest side of the Danube River on fire. But anyhow, in May of 1990, Hungary had their first real elections since 1920. Nine years later, they joined NATO, 1999, and in 2004, they became a member of the European Union. So for 20 years, from 1990 to 2010, Hungary was a functioning democratic republic, a member of the European Union, member of NATO, not for the entire time, but basically, you know, for 20 years, they were doing just fine. Viktor Orban has been president for nine years. And Hungary is no longer a functioning democracy. Hungary is now an oligarchy, a strongman oligarchy. In just nine short years, he completely transformed Hungary. So I think it's worth noting how he did this. First of all, he took over a party, a political party, it was called the Fidesz Party, which was sort of like the Republican Party. It was just your basic, generic, conservative, business-friendly political party in Hungary. He took this party over and basically transformed it. Through the power of his personality and his speeches, he campaigned on restoring Christian purity to Hungary. You'll recall during the Soviet time, there was no religion allowed. And his slogan was making a Hungary great again. He held rallies, he continues to hold them, that drew tens of thousands of people. He's a pretty good speaker. His main campaign promise was that he was going to build a wall along the five, 600 mile southern border of Hungary to keep out refugees who were coming north from Syria. And he, in fact, did build that wall. He kept his promise. He altered the nation's constitution to accomplish what you and I would call gerrymandering and voter suppression, to change the way that voters qualified to vote and the congressional districts were drawn, so that his party will always have a two-thirds majority in Hungary, no matter what even if they get less than half the vote. He has now stacked the courts, including their Supreme Court, to the point that anything he does that gets challenged in a court, he wins. He even, his party even rewrote the elementary school textbooks to say that refugees entering the country, keep in mind this was the big thing that he ran on, was these refugees coming from the South People with darker skin speaking a different language. These refugees coming from the South represented a threat. One of his guys referred to them as animals. And the textbooks were rewritten to say, and I quote, this is from one of the textbooks, refugees entering the country are a threat because it can be problematic for different cultures to coexist. Using that as a rationalization, Viktor Orban has locked up refugee children in cages in Hungary. And his base loves it. He said that the Syrian refugees seeking asylum, quote, this is a quote from Viktor Orban, pose a security risk and endanger the continent's Christian culture and identity. Five years before the Nazis marched in Charlottesville, there was a similar march with 700 right-wing, quote, patriots. It was a torchlight parade. It entered in front of a gypsy neighborhood, or they call the Roma. Gypsy is more of a slur, I guess, these days. But many people, you say Roma, and they don't know what you're talking about. They marched to this Roma neighborhood and chanted, we will set your houses on fire. Orban's police watched without intervening. Zolz Bayer, who was one of the founders of his political party, called the Roma, quote, animals unfit to live among people. He has handed out, over these nine years, he's handed out millions, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of government contracts to his friends and his political supporters, people who helped him get into office. Now, virtually the entire nation's press is in the hands either of oligarchs who favor him, you know, the Rupert Murdochs of Hungary. And so, you know, Hungary now has its equivalent of Fox News or they're in the hands of giant corporations that he basically has under his thumb with his tax breaks and his working with these corporations. So they very rarely seriously criticize him. He began dismantling the Hungarian Science Academy 
specifically to fire the scientists who were talking about climate change. He, Viktor Orban has said that climate change is, and I quote, left-wing trickery made up by Obama. In 2015 and in 2018, the European Union basically tried to impeach him. They basically said to Hungary, if you guys don't remove Orban from power, you're going to have some problems here with the rest of the European Union. And Orban used that attempted impeachment, essentially, in his re-election campaigns in 2016 and 2018, and actually increased the margin by which he won because he had been unsuccessfully impeached. He has reached out to right-wing zealots all around the world. For example, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, called him a true friend of Israel. Orban replied, this was a meeting that the two of them had in public, Orban replied, quote, a Hungarian patriot and a Jewish-Israeli patriot will always find something in common. This last summer, a couple months ago, five months ago, thereabouts, Donald Trump invited Viktor Orban to the White House over the objections of, uh, you know, virtually all the Democrats in the Senate and a bunch of Republicans, because this guy is, you know, he's viewed by everybody in Europe as, as a crazed right-wing lunatic, you know, the, the candidate to be the next Mussolini. But Trump embraced him. And at a rally three months before his White House meeting, in one of his rallies in Hungary, Viktor Orban said that, and I quote, countries that accept refugees are producing mixed race nations. Quote, immigration brings increased crime, especially crimes against women. Immigration lets in the virus of terrorism. Any of this sounding familiar? He hired his own version, local, you know, Hungarian version of Bill Barr. His Justice Department now routinely refuses to prosecute his friends. And his own version of Mike Pompeo, who basically just tells whatever lies Viktor Orban wants. That is what has happened in Hungary in nine short years. And initially, I mean, you know, when this all started, the Hungarian chattering class, the commentators and whatnot, they were saying, oh, that'll never happen, and Orban's a crackpot, and he's a buffoon, he constantly tells lies, nobody's going to take him seriously. He now has the country completely under his control. The courts, the legislature, the press, He's rewritten the laws, and he's even firing scientists now. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Is there a lesson there for us about what might happen if Trump gets four more years here? It took nine years for Orban to do this in Hungary. What could Trump do with eight years? Twenty twenty, a new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than one hundred of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlighting the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Lydia in Port Angeles, Washington. Hey, Lydia, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? When the news first hit in the middle of the night here on the West Coast about the assassination of the big hero in Iran, I got a couple news broadcasts from my Canadian radio. I'm right across from Victoria, so mm -hmm. I listen to the CBC all the time in the middle of the night, and every hour on the hour they have a world news report. So right. it said at first that it was not intentional 
as far as I recall, it was the middle of the night, granted, but the guy just happened to be in this convoy and that it wasn't part of the plan. And then within about an hour or hour and a half, they changed the story on the news where it was part of the plan. So have you heard anything like that? Well, you know, particularly in the immediate aftermath of events like this, the the news you know, is kind of trickling out and, and news stories are not always accurate. I wouldn't view that as evidence of some sort of grand conspiracy. I mean, one of the things that we're learning right now that's been reported by several sources is that the two people who were most enthusiastically encouraging Trump to take out Soleimani were mm-hmm. Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence. And uh-huh. both of these guys are end-time millennialist Christians. They are both hoping for a rapture, and the rapture is going to require a war in the Middle East, specifically with Israel. And who is Israel's biggest enemy in the Middle East? Iran. So if you can provoke a war with Iran and you can drag Israel into it, then Israel can have a war, and that can bring back Jesus. At least in the the minds of Pence and Pompeo. Pence and Pompeo are both, literally both of them, are end times millennialists. They are believers in the rapture enthusiastic believers in the rapture. So Suleimani was clearly the intended target. I'm guessing that if there was a mistaken target, it was the Iraqi guy who was the leader of the Iraqi Shia militia in Iraq that Mm. had been fighting ISIS alongside us. And he got taken out too. And that's one of the reasons why the Iraqi parliament voted to expel all Americans from Iraq. And now Trump is saying, oh, you want us to leave? Pay us for the Air Force Base. Right. Uh, like, you know, shall we pay them for the 500,000 dead Iraqis? I mean, it's just, oh, it's, it's insane. It is. And I'm sitting here, um, I think you're probably familiar with the area because you're from Oregon, but here we've got Whidbey Island Naval Air Station. We've got Bremerton, Hood Canal, Indian Island, biggest ammunition depot on the West Coast. To, Plus you've got you Boeing know. just down the road. It's all, it's oh, all juicy oh, target stuff. <laughs> Don't freak out, Lydia. Lydia, Lydia, Thanks a lot. It's comforting. Yeah, okay. Thanks a lot. Good to hear from you. We'll be right back. I want to get into the difference here between strategy and tactics, because this is the biggest mistake that Donald Trump made. And I'm hearing very few people talking about this. And then we can have a conversation about what all this means, what four more years of Trump might mean. We're seeing this writ large. We're seeing it now in the Philippines with Duterte, we're seeing it in Hungary with Orban, we're seeing it little earlier stages in Poland with Duda, (laughs) Duda, Duda. We're seeing it in India with Modi. We're seeing it now in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro. It's the rise of these right-wing autocrats basically moving their countries away from democracy. But the other thing is to get back to Trump's assassination of the Iranian general. In war and in diplomacy, there are basically two kinds of moves. Now, you know, as I said yesterday, I'm not a graduate of a war college, but, but I, you know, this is stuff that you can pick up from reading movies and novels, but frankly, my recollection is I learned this in social studies class. Now, in the context of diplomacy, not war, but, but basically there's two kinds of moves. There's tactical moves and there are strategic moves. Now, tactical moves are the things that you do in order to accomplish one specific goal. Right? In a war, it would be, take that hill. Okay, the tactic to take that hill is going to be we're going to, you know, put a gun emplacement here and we're going to, or we're going to get 5,000 guys and we're going to rush the hill or whatever. That's, those are tactics. How do you accomplish the goal? And in politics, a tactical move could be we're going to get this tariff on our soybeans reduced by offering to reduce a tariff on imported steel. It's just a tactic. A strategic move, on the other hand, is designed to change an entire system, like provoking a military response, or starting or ending or avoiding a war, or changing the economic balance of power. So strategic moves, by definition, require you to look out into the future. If I do A, then B will be the result. And if B is the result, 
I have two possible responses, C or D. And if, if I respond with C, then E is going to happen. If I respond with D, then F is going to happen. And if F happens, then G, you know, it's like that. It's strategic moves, they're called second, third, fourth order responses or outcomes. So we all clear on this. There's a difference between a tactical move, which is a short-term, one-off, you know, probably no consequence to it. You already have figured that out. Versus a strategic move, something that's going to have huge consequences that are going to be long-lasting. When Trump killed Soleimani, he thought, if I'm saying this guy's name right, I've, I've got to write it down someplace, but when Trump killed him, he thought he was engaging in a tactical move. He wasn't thinking beyond... We're going to kill a bad guy, and I'm going to get credit for it. He was basking in the glow of having, you know, killed the other, the more recent ISIS guy. And, you know, he's like, oh, kill bad guys, get good press. Right? That's what he was thinking, tacticed. But in fact, and, you know, if he had wise people advising him, that was actually a strategic move. It altered the balance of power in the region. It altered significantly the relationship, not just between the United States and Iran, but between Iran and Iraq, and between the United States and Iraq. There are literally hundreds of consequences arising out of this event. And because of this, when Iran responds militarily, we're going to be at the second order of this stuff because this was strategic and there will be a response. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind? Oh, these last few days have truly been absolutely horrendous for me. I can only imagine how people must be feeling with their brothers and sisters overseas in the service right oh, now. Oh, can you imagine how our troops I mean, in Iraq must be feeling right now? Or in the entire region? I mean, we've got about 5,000 troops in a little more than a dozen countries in that region. I had a um, brother who was just recently over in Afghanistan. Islamabad, I believe their place was called. And I also had a older brother who was in the Navy, stationed in uh, Bahrain for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know that region quite well. We have a very significant amount of troops in all those areas and all those targets that uh, Iran could target. But I don't think they're going to target any of those targets. I think it's going to be a target probably could be even in the United States for all we know. They have targets and agents all around the world that they could use. Yes. You know, this whole thing with the U.S., I feel like our drone use is finally starting to come home to roost. Our extrajudicial killing of people, regardless of what you thought of Osama or Baghdadi, we should not have killed them. It was not the right thing to do to just go into another country and just execute somebody when we could have brought them before a court and tried them like criminals that they are. Well, that's another and perhaps a larger conversation. But, Jared, killing Osama bin Laden and killing Baghdadi, those were tactical moves. There was no consequence to those. This was a strategic move. This is something that moves countries. I don't think that we have done anything in the three years that Trump has been president that compares to it. Maybe pulling yeah. out of the Iran yeah. nuclear deal. I guess that was a strategic move, too, that Trump thought was tactical. Actually, he was just doing what Fox News told him to do or what Putin told him to do or something. I don't know. Putin wouldn't have told him to pull out of the Iran deal because uh, Russia was one of the parties to that deal. Russia helped negotiate yeah. that deal. We can debate whether or not we should be assassinating terrorists, you know, who... Uh, but but Soleimani, but, Soleimani was not a terrorist. I have to point this out enough, enough, enough. He was a military general. He's a very respected military general. He has something like a 90% approval rating in Iran. How would Americans feel if Iran dropped a bomb on, like, an American general? Because, you know, they have justification, too, to say that we've killed Iranians. Well, so that may be what they're planning. Like, I mean, maybe they've got some flag officers in their crosshairs. God only knows, you know? It's just, I'm, I'm just saying, we need to be ready when it happens to say this is on Donald Trump. This is not on Iran. Mike Flynn. 
initially he was cooperating and then he decided to go all in on trying to get a pardon out of Donald Trump. He hired a couple of Fox News lawyers, literally people who practice law on Fox News or pontificate about the law on Fox News. Hired a couple of Fox News lawyers and started uh, basically attacking our intelligence services and our courts and things like that. So today he went into court and the prosecutors who had initially been saying he should just get probation because he helped us out, they're now saying he deserves at least six months in prison. How far they fall. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey Paul, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. You know, I have to say, if you look at the history of Iran in the past hundred years, if I were them, I don't think I would trust the United States any further than I could sling a camel turd. Yeah. Uh, really, I mean, think about it. Since 1920, when the British Mandate renamed Iran from the country of Persia and deposed the House of Pahlavi and installed a secular democratic government, but then in 1953, deposed that government, Mohammad Mossadegh, because he wanted to nationalize the Iranian oil right. and canceled, canceled the British petroleum oil contracts. Right. So what did the United States of the CIA do was install, overthrow Mossadegh and install, reinstate, restore the House of Pahlavi. That was the Shah. Right. Mohammad Pahlavi was the Shah, the king of Iran, and he was a butcher. I mean, they talk about what what the Iran has become. That's why they overthrew the, the Shah. Yeah, he was the Iranian they, version of Saddam Hussein. Exactly, and then and then the United who, States by the way, was him. also put into power as a result of an American coup in 1954 in Iraq. It's right, and then we harbored Pahlavi, the Shah, here, and then the students took over the embassy, the American right. embassy. Right. Now, here's this is outrageous. The report that I heard that, that Trump said he was going to bomb these Iranian cultural sites, 52 of them, one for each of the 52 hostages, which I thought this guy's going back 40-some years to right. that. He really wants to inflame things. Okay, then, Tom, let's go through the 80s. The Iran-Contra scandal where we sold not only tow missiles to Iran, we also provided Iraq with chemical weapons. We're, so we're, uh, we were providing weaponry for both sides. And satellite intelligence. And satellite intelligence. And then, look at this. The Iran nuclear agreement, the, the multinational nuclear agreement, the Republicans, senators, spearheaded by Tom Cotton, sent a letter to the Iranians saying it wasn't worth the paper it was printed on, and then Trump pulls it out of the deal. Right. So what this tells you is that the Republicans have always wanted this option of conflict Iran to be open, because you can't assassinate one of their officials if you have an agreement with them, right? Mm -hmm. This is the same mentality that they have about why the Republicans never want to pass a budget. We really haven't had a, a, so, a federal budget since... Since 2008, because if you have a budget, you can't raise taxes and you can't have wild spending. Or you can't cut taxes and you can't have wild well, spending. Well, also, if you have a real budget, you have to have a conversation about the components of that budget. But you know, the, the, the assertion you're making, Paul, here is that the Republicans have been wanting to have a war with Iran for some time. The question, then, Correct. is why? I mean, the, the, the facile answer, the answer that you'll hear in the media or from commentators, is that Iran stirs up trouble in the region, particularly trouble for Israel, by their activities in Lebanon, their activities inside Israel, things like that. Is it possible that that's the limit of it? Or, you know, that this is just Netanyahu pushing? Or is, is it that we want their oil? I mean, what possible reason do they have? Well, and the, and the other one is the, the more obvious political one, which is to gin up their base, which is why Trump said 52 cultural sites for 52 hostages, because he wants to, the people have this, uh, this, this memory of, oh, we have to hate these people, who we've, by the way, done very wrong. You know where Iran got their nuclear reactors in 1954? From General Electric. From no, I wasn't. Actually, it was AMF, the company that makes uh -huh. bowling equipment, okay. is the one who made it. But they got them from us. Right. And that was in Eisenhower's uh, Adams for Peace program, right. where they were trying to demonstrate how uh, atomic uh, power was not, was not a, a, you know, a big death thing. It could be used for good. So it was going to provide power for them and also use it in medical laboratories. But uh, you think about this. The other thing I want to respond to was the idea that this was comparable to 
Osama bin Laden. And another caller, and uh, by the way, Alan Dershowitz had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and I heard him talking about it. And I got to tell you, I don't have any respect for that guy anymore. He, it, how can you not? Can you miss the absolute wrong comparison in this? First of all, as another caller pointed out, Osama bin Laden is not an official of a sovereign nation. Correct. In fact, he'd been kicked out of his own nation. He had been expelled by Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and not only that, let's look at what happened. See, people forget, but I remember, the Osama bin Laden, that was a raid. The Navy SEALs broke into his compound, and when he went for a weapon is when he was shot. This was not a drone attack, because Obama wanted him alive so he could go on trial. Yep. So that's very different than an assassination by drone that wasn't the same at all. They just throw this out thinking that people will just forget what really happened. And you know, if they really wanted the Soleimani guy, they would have done the same thing. They They would have taken him alive and put him on trial for something. But since he's an official of another's sovereign state, they really can't do that. So it was an assassination. This was nothing like Osama bin Laden. It was nothing like it. And they keep trying to put this off to uh, just call them all terrorists and then we can kill them all. That's the whole thing here. Yeah, it's very facile. And it ignores history, it ignores context. And I would think that the last thing that Republicans would want to do would be to remind Americans about the 52 hostages that Reagan's campaign, according to the president of Iran, Bonnie Sauter, Mr. Bonnie Sauter, who now lives in the United States, has said on the record that he was president of Iran. He, be, he was elected president of Iran in September of 1980, ran on a campaign platform of freeing the hostages and getting that thing done with and over, took 74% of the vote, and he went to the Ayatollahs and said, okay, let's release the hostages. That's what I campaigned on. That's what I want to do. And the Ayatollahs said, no, we got to deal with the Reagan campaign, and they're going to sell us weapons now, and in fact, we were, we're already taking delivery of tires via Israel. They're going to sell us weapons, uh, particularly after the election, but we have to hold these hostages until the moment Ronald Reagan is sworn in as president. And they literally did. I mean, it was literally to the minute that they released the hostages as Reagan put his hand on the Bible, January of 1981, when Reagan was sworn in. Right. And, and you know, speaking, speaking to that point, Tom, recently uh, President Carter said, that about the hostage situation, he said, I was advised to attack Iran. He said, and I knew that the people would be behind me and that I would probably win re-election for doing so. And he also knew that, he said that if I didn't do such a thing and pursue the course that I took, I would probably lose the election. Right. He said, but I knew if I attacked Iran, many people would be killed, including probably the hostages. Right. He says, but as it was, 52 hostages came home alive, and yes, I lost the election. He says, but you know what? You have to decide what the real value for America is. No one was killed, but I lost the election. That was his point. Right, right. And, uh, you know, a a point that uh, Nixon didn't make, a point that Reagan didn't make, a point that George W. Bush didn't make, and that now Donald Trump is not making. Paul, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. I used to think New Year, New Me, but, uh, you know, for most of us, it's really more like New Year, New Wrinkles. With every passing year, we all look older. But now all that's changed thanks to Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's magic in a bottle. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. Simply apply this powerful serum to problem areas, and within moments, voila, a new younger you. And the best part? No surgery or Botox. It's all natural. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Ring in 2020 with Plexiderm for smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles behind with Plexiderm. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, two N's, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998. Or visit Plexiderm.com today and use the code HARTMAN at checkout.
On the line with us is Major Danny Sherson. He's a U.S. Army strategist, former history instructor at West Point, who served tours with reconnaissance units in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's the author of Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge, his memoir and critical analysis of the Iraq war. His website is fortressonahill.com, and you can tweet him at Skeptical Vet. Major Sherson, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, and please call me Danny. Okay, Danny, thank you so much for joining us. I read your piece, and I'm so sorry to hear that two of the men who were under your command, Mr. Fuller and Mr. Balsley, died as a result of apparently what this uh, general that Donald Trump just blew up was doing in Iraq, and I get it, and I would think you of all people would be in a position to celebrate his death. I've been riffing about a fundamental difference between strategy and tactics, that a tactical decision is one that produces a short-term result. It's, you know, take that hill kind of thing, whereas a strategic decision is one that produces probably multiple consequences. And as you consider it, you consider the consequences of those consequences, and then the consequences of those consequences, and how you're going to respond to each one, and how the other guy's going to respond to each one. Things that have already been thought through before tactical decisions are made. And it seems to me that what Donald Trump did by assassinating this guy was essentially made a what he thought was a tactical decision, a one-off. Uh, he thought he was just going to kill another bad guy and get all kinds of praise like he did when he killed al-Baghdadi. And in fact, what he made was a major strategic decision with no strategy. Am I making sense here? Well, you're making complete sense. As you said, on paper, you know, given my background, won't expect that I would be cheering Soleimani's death. And of course I'm not. And that's not because I think Soleimani was a great guy, but rather because I agree with you, this was a massive, massive strategic blunder. And from most of the insider reporting I've seen, unsurprising given President Trump's temperament, it appears that very little thought was actually put into this. You know, he was presented, according to a New York Times article, with three scenarios or a few scenarios. And the most extreme option, which is usually a throwaway option, because I've given those briefings to bosses, to commanders, where we provide options and they pick a course of action. Normally, the most extreme, the most aggressive choice is a throwaway. And very rarely does the decision maker choose that, but it appears from at least the inside reporting, and that does not surprise me that Trump just jumped on this. So I am against the assassination of Soleimani for three reasons. Number one, it is illegal under international and domestic law to assassinate governmental figures. Number two, because of the lack of congressional sanction, and therefore what we have is a act that is tantamount to war with a nation on which Congress, constitutionally mandated, has not declared war. And three, your point, that this is a strategic blunder that is certain to blow back on us, just like every single ill-advised operation since 9-11 has blown back on us. Let me say that again. Every single operation the U.S. military has undertaken since September 12, 2001, has ended up blowing back on us. So that's my general position. And I will tell you, I have taken a lot of heat for that. I don't really care about the Internet trolls, but I do feel hurt when soldiers who you know, served under my command in Iraq or Afghanistan attack me, attack my position, call me a terrorist apologist. That's not easy to hear, but I have to stand by my guns because strategy is not a place for emotion. Yeah, and I will note for our viewers and listeners that uh, Major Danny Sherson wrote an op-ed titled Trump's Illegal Impeachable War that I found over at CommonDreams.org. I'm not sure where else it might be appearing on the Internet. And, you know, you're pointing out violence begets violence. Revenge engenders cycles of revenge. I'm quoting you. This is exactly why war or acts of war must not be taken lightly. And I would add must not be taken to try to seize the news cycle away from a story of impeachment that you don't like or things like that. The call for action, essentially, that I've been laying out based on my conclusion that Trump made a strategic decision without any strategy, thinking it was a tactical decision, and that therefore there will be strategic consequences, is that the first of those strategic consequences is going to be what Iran has already said they are going to do, 
and what the United States government, Mike Pompeo this morning, has already said they fully expect to have happen, which is Iran is going to respond in some fashion, and it is going to lead to the death of some Americans, almost certainly, whether they attack a base in Iraq or whether they blow up an embassy someplace or what, you know, God only knows what they're going to do. And they've already said it's going to be against a military target or at least with the military. So I doubt that they're going to, you know, it's going to be some sort of an attack on like a Trump property or something. But in any case, my concern is that once that happens, that will be used as justification to expand the conflict with Iran and move us closer and closer into an all-out war with Iran or you know, possibly even an invasion of Iran. And this time we don't have our allies. This time we're taking on a country of roughly 80 million people that is huge and advanced and sophisticated and may have nuclear capability, certainly has nuclear dirty bomb capability right now. And it's all being done with virtually no thought. And so my thought is that what we need to be doing is making it very clear to people that when this response comes, rather than getting angry with the Iranians for responding to Trump's killing of Soleimani, we should be getting angry with Trump for having started this cycle of violence and retribution. And only if we can seed that ground, only if we can get people thinking in those terms so that when it happens, the reflexive response isn't, oh my God, they hit us, we need to hit back. But instead, the reflexive response is, we never should have done that in the first place. We got, tragically, what Trump set up for us. Basically, blame it on Trump. Am I making any sense here in your mind? You 100% are. What you're calling for is a relatively mature ethical response to the inevitable retaliation of Iran. And I would love to believe that when, not if, when Iran retaliates that the American people should immediately hit the streets and call for negotiations rather than a counter response. I'm not confident that will happen, unfortunately, given the history of the American anti-war movement since September 12, 2001. Trump is counting, right? He's counting on two things. One, our apathy in foreign affairs. We don't look for complexity for the most part. Americans, we're so busy living paycheck to paycheck. And the second thing he's counting on, and he might be right, is that just as we're seeing happen in Iran right now, that upon Iran's retaliation against an American target, the United States people will rally around the flag and rally around their president, which historically has been the case. Now, that's a dangerous thing. There's three forms of blowback I'm worried about. I'm a former military man, uh, retired in February, so I still think in threes. Three forms of blowback. The first is simple. That's the blowback that's going to kill some Americans. That always concerns me, especially 19 years into undeclared wars. Number two, the blowback that we're already seeing, which is that we may end up getting pushed out of Iraq because of this. As we see the Iraqi parliament put pressure on the Iraqi prime minister to remove all troops. And the third form of blowback, and this is the really important one, is the one you're talking about, which is that I fear, as Trita Parsi of the Quincy Institute said on Democracy Now! two days ago, that Trump's action may well have been what he called an irreversible escalation, meaning that he has cast the die to such an extent that further escalation is almost inevitable. For example, Trump has said that if Iran retaliates, the Department of Defense has already prepared 52 targets that they will immediately hit in Iran, one for each of the hostages Iran took back in 1979. This is absurdist escalation. This is absurdist foreign policy, and it frightens me to death. Yeah. My thought on how to avoid that happening is to prepare people to blame the consequences of this on Trump. Can you think of any better strategy? Is there something I'm missing here? No, I think that's our best hope. It may be our last best hope. If we don't rally the opposition to Trump, and maybe even some of the independents who are on the fence, if such a thing exists in America, tribal America to this day, if we don't start now, if we don't prep the battlefield, as we would say, among the people and say, look, an escalation or a retaliation is coming, and it behooves us to blame that retaliation primarily on the ill-advised, arguably illegal action of our own president, our own administration, because that's what set this in motion. And that's our best chance. Now, the question is, is there enough sophistication? Is there enough paying attention 
to foreign policy? And is there enough nuance and complexity in the brains of the American people? Count me skeptical. skeptical yeah, me too. And I would add to that the other piece of the equation, which we saw played out in 2003 in a big way when Bill Maher lost his show and when, I mean, you know, numerous people, Phil Donahue lost his show for opposing the war in Iraq, is to what extent is the media, because ratings go up during wars, media loves, corporate media in America loves wars, to what extent is the media going to jump on the cheerleading bandwagon and how can we influence that? You know, that's even more difficult. I mean, there are structural problems with the media since they are a corporate entertainment machine primarily at this point. I, uh, perhaps they've always been, but more than ever today. Yeah. One of the things I noticed that's been frustrating me about the media is that it's polarized just like the political parties and they play to their base. And so there is massive disagreement as to whether Trump's action was strategic or not. But what we don't see is any historical context being provided by even the, you know, mainstream left-wing media. In other words, the the understanding is Soleimani was, Soleimani was bad, it's a shame he went, while no one looks back and says maybe America started this whole game with its coup in 1953. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Major Danny Sherson is the author of Ghost Riders of Baghdad, his website, fortressonahill.com. You can tweet him at Skeptical Vet, and his op-ed, Trump's Illegal Impeachable War at Common Dreams. Hang on, just a second here. Is the Tom Hartman program. Danny, thanks so much for dropping by. It's been great talking with you. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Teresa in Pahoa, Hawaii. Hey, Teresa, what's yes. on your mind? Yeah, just to add on that in that, oh, I don't know, Washington Post or New York, New York Times Post about that article where the senior advisor to the Iran president said that, in addition, that they know it's all Trump, so that's why they want to hit his properties. It's nothing to do with the Americans. It's all it's all him. And, 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 and also that's not being covered is how the China's ambassador to Iraq, Zentao, said that Beijing is ready to give military assistance to Iraq. And he said this to the prime minister of Iraq, um, Adil al-Mahdi. Yeah, yeah, that that has yeah. been the case though for several years. I mean, China China is building a significant presence in the Middle East. They're building a significant presence across Africa. Their Belt and Road program is a, is a multi-trillion dollar program to basically create not just alliances but trade routes as well so that they're creating customers for their own goods. They're building power stations and dams and things in other countries. And people say, you know, China's bringing a coal-fired power plant online every week. Most of those are outside of China. They're building those in other parts of the world, the third world. So I'm not so concerned about China saying that they're willing to offer Iraq military assistance. But let's not forget, to your point, Teresa, that two weeks ago, China, Russia, and Iran were doing joint naval exercises in the Gulf. That's right. That's right. And, exactly. I mean, there's already an alliance there, and, and uh, you know, we need to be paying attention to this. Teresa, thank you for your call. Ray in Eugene, Oregon. Hey, Ray, it says you're a retired general? Yeah, uh, brigadier general. Wow. I'm impressed. What's up? What are your thoughts? The idea of strategy, the Greek word for general is strategos, so that's the root for strategy. Mm-hmm. Used to be, we used to talk about what was called a grand strategy, and that would involve all elements of national power. And the way they used to analyze that was ways, means, and ends. I think the example a person gave, or you talked about Belt Road, that's an example of a national strategy. Yes. Uh, and not necessarily grand, but the idea is to get the influence, the idea is the means to do it, which would be Belt and Road system. Right. A good example, I think, also, where we got it right was during the Gulf War, with Bush and Powell, their planning basically was almost like an operational order at a national level. You had uh, who, what, when, where, and why, and they kind of translated that from uh, on a national level down to the operational level, which was what occurring in Kuwait issue. But we're not seeing any of that right now with Trump. Well, you won't, because he basically, when I talk to friends, I say, if you want to know what Trump's going to do, Trump will do what's best for Trump. So you say, if Trump does this, what's the benefit for Trump? 
But of course, he's you know he's very short fuse. He's impulse, and I'd like to know who the individual was that put that on the list yeah. to kill that guy because it was really stupid. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Ray. I think a good analogy that most Americans would understand is that Trump is playing checkers, and the Iranians are playing chess. And they're looking 20 moves ahead, and he's looking one move ahead, maybe, if that. I don't know. Ray, thanks a lot for the call. I hope you call in again. I'd love to have a longer conversation with you. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Meanwhile, we've got Mike Pompeo out there saying Americans are much safer now because of this. Now, reporting in The Washington Post suggests that, and actually probably one of the best pieces I read on this was over Daily Kos, which is a summary of The Washington Post piece. This is from a piece at Kos titled Pompeo Awaiting the Rapture Pushed Trump to Strike Iranian General Soleimani. And the author, Fish Out of Water, notes, the Washington Post has reported that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was the main force that pushed Trump into assassinating Iranian General Soleimani. Pompeo, according to the New York Times reporter, had a fixation with a Bible passage about Queen Esther protecting Israel from Iran. And then from the New York Times, in November, Mr. Pompeo told a reporter for the New York Times magazine that the Bible informs everything I do. The reporter noticed an open Bible in his office with a Swiss army knife marking his place at the end of the book of Queen Esther. Mike Pompeo, they note, is a conservative evangelical Christian who believes in the rapture and that God is working through Trump and himself. In fact, there's a quote that follows this where Mike Pence says, I am confident that the Lord is at work here. Are we swallowing hard yet? Pompeo went on to say, it is a never-ending struggle, describing his work for the president, until the rapture. This is what he told a church group in Kansas. And that apparently Pence was gung-ho on this too. Yes, let's have a war in the Middle East to bring Jesus back. Because Jesus loves wars, you know. All of this because Paul got exiled to this island, Patmos Island, to the Greek islands, and had a hallucination? I mean, it's amazing. But where I was going with this was Pompeo's assertion that assassinating this general has made Americans safer. If Americans are safer right now, you would think that we could dial back on the security and the hysteria, right? We wouldn't need to be, well, and we don't need to be, frankly, stopping Iranian Americans with U.S. passports at the border as we're getting more and more and more reports of this. Uh, this one woman uh, was stopped and with, along with her five-year-old daughter and held overnight at the U.S. border. She's an American, an American citizen. Her parents were Iranians. She's an American. We wouldn't be doing that if we thought that America was safer, right? I mean, we shouldn't be doing it anyway, but we wouldn't be telling Americans abroad, look out. I look at a broad variety of news sources, and this morning I looked at Breitbart. I was surprised to see this story right up at the top. It was the number one or number two most read story on Breitbart this morning. The headline, State Department urges Americans abroad, quote, keep a low profile, end quote. Thomas Williams wrote this for Breitbart. It says this U.S. State Department has issued a series of alerts for American citizens abroad, citing, quote, heightened tension in the Middle East, end quote, after the drone strike on Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. In Italy, for example, the U.S. Embassy in Rome sent out an email message to Americans urging them to keep a low profile. Since increased tensions in the Middle East, quote, may result in security risk to U.S. citizens abroad. Apparently, the U.S. Embassy in Israel is doing, in Jerusalem, is doing the same thing, sending out alerts. Now, if what Pompeo is saying is true, that this made Americans safer, 
then why is Pompeo's State Department running around saying, look out, duck, get ready. You know, figure out where in the building you're safest and figure out what desk you can crawl under. And I mean, it's really, we're safer? Jeffrey in Palm Springs, California. Hey, Jeffrey, what's up? The reason we're in Iraq and Iran is because if you go on the Internet, you can see General Wesley Clark stating that just a few days after the 9-11, he was given a top-secret memo from another general that stated we were to invade the following seven countries in the next five years. It's taken more than five years, but the seventh country, we've hit Somalia, Afghanistan, all of them, yeah. except for Libya, Syria. Iran. Yeah. And so that, that was already preordained. And number two, you can also go on the Internet and see George W. Bush himself stating why we do these things. And he says that it's called George W. Bush accidentally tells the truth. He actually says his own words in an interview. He was asked by why we're putting sanctions on these countries and going into war. He says basically it's all money trumps peace. Corporate interests. It's up to them to convince people that it's to their own benefit to spend all this money for war because you will be kept safe. Yeah. It's right there on the Internet, its own words. Well, this, yeah, you know, this is what Dwight Eisenhower warned us about, you know, the, the last decent the military Republican industrial president. complex. Exactly. Yeah, it's, you know, just go look at Eisenhower's speech, and in, in, I think it was in December of 1960, maybe January of 61, his farewell address. And he warned us. I've played it on this program many times. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy doesn't just fall out of the sky. It doesn't happen spontaneously, you know, like Van Leeuwenhoek's theory of spontaneous generation. Mice? They come from straw. No, it doesn't happen that way. It takes effort. It takes you. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. And tell your friends about where they can find You've progressive media. you listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.